The following presentation was recorded live at the 2019 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products or to subscribe to the Bioneers podcast, please visit www.bioneers.org. Thank you for coming to our session. We know there was a lot on the menu, um, but let me tell you, you picked the right spot to be in. We are here to present our session, Environmental Literacy and Social Change. Um, and you see a lot of organizations and logos across the bottom. So we're real excited to work together in a collaborative nature, as we tend to do um, when it comes to matters of education and the environment. And so you'll get to learn more about who we are and why we're here. Environmental literacy and social change are inextricably linked. There is, you know, some of you may remember going to school and learning about things. We see the need, the value of education, of literacy as something that's useful and necessary and of high value. We cannot get through a single day without having an impact on the world around us. And that what we do and what we do not do makes a big difference. And so we have to decide what kind of difference we're going to make. And I'm really excited for all of you because you get to, and I get to hear again, <laughs> these incredible stories of the differences that some of our, our educators and our students are making across the state of California. And then finally, this is, this is hard work. We do have a lot of work to do, as we heard from this morning's speaker and from our, our hero, our champion, Greta Thunberg. It was earlier this year in, in April when she said, we can still fix this, but it is up to us. And so I think this really sets the stage for what we have brought together into this session today. Um, we'll begin with just a little bit of background information so you know who the California um, Environmental Literacy Initiative is, who we are that brings us all together. And then we're going to hear from some incredible change makers who bring us their perspectives and their work and their challenges from a school district level, from a classroom level as a high school chemistry teacher, and from the, the seats of our classrooms, from the perspectives of a student. These are three incredible change makers that I'm so proud to be able to introduce to you and to sit by today so that we can all hear from their experiences. And so I'm happy to, to introduce Beth while she's standing up for a moment. <laughs> Beth Ratner, who's the director of the Biomimicry Institute. And she probably doesn't know this, but the day that I found out about biomimicry, my world unlocked. <laughs> I have a whole different way of looking at the wind and the plants and the animals and all of these natural systems and natural elements that help inform me to do the work that I do. So um, without further ado, hello, I'm Emily Shell, <laughs> and I am the executive director of the California Global Education Project, which is one of the nine California subject matter projects uh, working with kindergarten through 12th grade teachers across the state of California. While my partners in the project work on writing and science and math, I get to work on this little topic of global education. So we get it all. Um, and I'm based at San Diego State University. I'm also the co-chair of the California Environmental Literacy Initiative, uh, which we'll hear a little bit more about in a moment. But I do want to take this opportunity to introduce Karen Cow, who's the director of the California Environmental Literacy Initiative. So our speakers today are Juanita Chan, who's here from the Rialto uh, Unified School District, where she is the 
STEM and College and Career Pathway Coordinator for that school district in the, in the Inland Empire. Okay, so we have Juanita who's going to share our district perspective on environmental literacy and social change. And to her right is um, Kavita Gupta, who is a high school chemistry teacher in the Fremont Union High School District, not too far from here, uh, where she teaches at Montebello, sorry, Monte Vista High School. Kavita is also a National Geographic Education Fellow. So she shares not only with her students in Fremont and her colleagues in the school district, uh, but with educators across the, the United States and Canada. And I think it seeps out to some other educators around the world as well. And then finally, to her right, we have Caleb Jordan McDaniels, who is a senior right now at Redwood High School in Marin. And he is the 2019 award winner for the Biomimicry Youth Design Challenge. So we're going to get to hear from him. Congratulations. Um, before we all get to engage in the biomimicry experience. Okay, so the California Environmental Literacy Initiative. Uh, that is an organization that brings us together from across the state, from a variety of stakeholders, to meet this goal of ensuring that every one of our 6.2 million students in schools across the state of California have access to environmental literacy. This initiative grew out of a blueprint that was released by the state superintendent of public schools in 2015. And from this blueprint came the suggestion to create a group of pu public and private working together in partnership to support student learning and teachers teaching and administrators helping us lead for environmental literacy. And so in that report and through the work that we do, we describe an environmentally literate person, both the students as well as the adults working um, in our school systems, as someone having the capacity to act both individually and with others to support ecologically sound, economically prosperous, and equitable communities for present as well as future generations. Small task, okay? But we're working on it. And then the work that I do with our, our global education project and the reason that I work with the California Environmental Literacy Initiative is because it echoes, it is embedded in, it is it supports and lifts up the work that we do in global education, where we work with teachers to, to support global competence in all of our students across the state. And in other words, students and adults who have the disposition as well as the knowledge to act, to understand and act on issues of global significance. So we work with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which all embrace environmental justice um, as we work with, with students to develop their skills and dispositions. So we have this incredible support, and you know, we still have the fireworks <laughs> in the sky. Um, as, as an organization, we work together with our partners and legislators to have Senate Bill 720, which was passed in 2018 and signed into law, which provides support and encouragement for the teaching of environmental education across the disciplines, embedding those environmental principles and concepts that our teachers are becoming more and more familiar with, as well as our students, um, encouraging funding and, and collaboration across the state of California. 
And so the educators in the room know that what drives education in the state of California are our officially adopted frameworks and standards. And so we're very happy to now have three frameworks, one for science education, the other for history, social science education, and now the third in, in health education, which um, include attention to environmental literacy. As you can see, I don't have time to go over this chart, but across these three new frameworks is attention to teaching students learning with an inquiry mindset, with inquiry methodology, so that they can then take action in their local communities, in their as global citizens. Um, and this is what brings together the, this session. Um, if you're not familiar with the environmental principles and concepts, you can find those online. This is how we have begun to define environmental literacy. And we have, of course, as you're going to hear today, built upon that foundation of these five principles, which all have then concepts that support these five principles uh, about the environment. And then we find in standards like the, the science standards that we're using, that these environmental principles and concepts are just, they're literally built into the DNA of those different themes and parts of the standards and framework. Okay, so um, now we get to hear from each of our speakers who are going to tell us a little bit about what all of that looks like from their perspective with their experiences um, in teaching environmental literacy and supporting social action or social change. Okay, Juanita. All right, so my name is Juanita Chan. Like she said, I'm the STEM and College and Career Pathways Coordinator for Rialto Unified School District, which basically means that I do all of the professional development, curriculum development, and support for two programs, TK-12. One of them is all of our science programs, TK-12, and then our career technical education courses, which are the old school, like, voc-ed kind of courses. And in Rialto, um, we are in Southern California, so we are in the Inland Empire. People are like, oh, SoCal, like LA. No, we're not LA, we're not San Diego. We're in the Inland Empire. We're about 60 miles, I guess, east of LA, and about 60 miles maybe west of Palm Springs, so that puts you in perspective. Uh, people usually drive right through us. What I love the most about Rialto is that we are in a riparian ecosystem where most of the water has been diverted. So that means that we are low-growing grassy shrubs and, uh, you know, we have endangered species like the woolly star, the Delhi sands loving fly, and, um, and the San Bernardino kangaroo rats. And so when people think about environmental literacy and really falling in love with your environment, that's what people think about, weeds and rats and flies. They say, yes, let's do that. And so as a result, it really leads a whole community where people don't even realize what their native environment that they're living in. And, um, and that actually brings uh, a couple of different issues. So Rialto is about 77% Hispanic Latino. We're about 12% African American. We're 88% free and reduced lunch, uh, which means that we fall into all of those Title I. We've got a lot of boxes to check. Um, and that goes into something that we focus on, which is really thinking about environmental literacy being for all students. And we say all students, we mean all students, 
right? Um, from a TK-12 perspective, that's a challenge because we service about 25,000 students. And with 25,000 students, how are you gonna make that a reality for everybody? It cannot live with environmental clubs that are happening after school and Saturday events. It can't live there. It has to live in the regular everyday education of what we're offering every single year. And so in order for that to be a reality, we had to have a larger vertically articulated plan. So I like to think about science as a team sport. It's the only sport I'm any good at. And, uh, and so we really focus on our energies on every single teacher at every grade level to make sure that the student experience that we have for kids as they're going through has multiple opportunities to get out in nature and to, um, and to recognize and be able to make observations about things. Um, that being said, we have some foundational classes, so we want to make sure that we have a strong science foundation for everyone. At high school, we have a three-year graduation model, um, and so we did some external evaluation, and we found out that chemistry was our gatekeeper course. And that, knowing that, we were left with only about 12% of students being considered college ready by the time they graduated from high school. That's not good enough for us. And so, uh, so we implemented a whole new set of high school classes and now students have 12 courses that they can take in their high school years. And those 12 courses follow sequences. One of them is like an environmental science kind of sequence of courses. Another one is called global health. It's a sequence of courses. And the third one is focused on um, water careers or careers in public utilities. So they're all science classes. They replace the regular biochem physics and they are focused on the um, making sure that students have voice and choice. We backwards mapped those to make sure that there were opportunities at each grade level um, called common labs, because what the system is really familiar with is benchmark kind of tests. And so we replaced benchmark tests with outdoor learning activities that everybody works through and it's the goal that teachers really, um, that it's not an obstructive assessment, but instead it's a learning piece that goes through. Um, so we have common labs, we focus on project-based learning, and then local and relevant issues. So these were, these were some of our foundational steps, shifting the district language so that it included all the way up to the district office, this idea of reducing environmental impact on the stuff that we do as an organization. So the district transportation services, maintenance and operation, all those things. Improving overall student wellness so that students can focus on um, some of those larger, how do we make civic change? How do we change our environment if we don't feel good in ourselves, right? And then the last one is a focus on sustainability education, which I kind of focused on that whole time. Um, our district won the Green Achiever Award from the US Department of Education just two weeks ago. We just got <laughs> And so at the bottom left there, we had a green, um, a green committee, so we have a program called STEM CARES, and that STEM CARES stands for STEM Cultivates Active Responsible Environmental Stewards, and that's what we're trying to make sure that every single student, all 25,000 of them, that that's what they are by the time they leave us. So we provide lots of opportunities for those kids. So uh, on the left-hand side, I took a group of, me personally, I took a group of 60 middle school girls out camping. It was the first time that many of these girls had had an experience like that. And the one takeaway that I felt the most proud of was a girl looked at me and she said, you know what, Miss Champ? You know what I learned from this trip? Sometimes you should put your phone down and talk to people. I'm like, that is 
right. Sometimes you should do that. Uh, that group down there, fishing in the city, those kids had never been fishing before, so being able to offer those students those opportunities. The same thing, growing, growing their own um, fruits and vegetables that are processed through nutrition services. We were talking about some of the challenges that go along with the system constraints for what you were allowed to do with food, and now the idea that there's a lot of support happening from um, the state and the federal to be able to allow schools to be more sustainable in their long-term practices. So we ensure liter environmental literacy for all, like I said, um, by having a comprehensive plan. In elementary school, that plan definitely looks like collaborating with the community on community environmental events, those common labs starting all the way down in kindergarten, and then clubs and benchmark style um, PBL units that are infused in their regular scope and sequences um, for those of you that do that teacher speak. At middle school, it's the same thing, plus the addition of some um, additional classes. And then at high school, it articulates up to um, those high school courses and sequences that we partner with institutes of higher education and industry partners to allow for students to do summer programming to learn things like solar, you know, how to put in solar. So thinking about green careers as well. One of the projects that um, really kind of hit home was this idea of making sure that the kids know. So here's Rialto. That's what I'm talking about. You see the low growing shrubs. You see the flies. That's us. Uh, we're really excited about that. So we have this group of students up here. This is one example where basically this group of students went out and they were harvesting. Um, they were harvesting these telescopic plants, these ones right here, these weeds right here, because they're doing a native garden at their particular school. Um, and then the last thing to kind of go along with that is this uh, focus really on um, making sure that there are opportunities for students to think about engineering and problem solving in a really creative way using tools like biomimicry, um, and one example is a PBL unit that they did where they were looking at green careers, in particular solar panels. And so to talk about the different angles and things in order for um, maximum like energy uh, collection and transfer, looking at things like flowers and butterflies. And I think that's it for me. There you go. What an amazing presentation, isn't it? Let's hear it one more time for Juanita. Now, this is almost not fair for me to have to go after her because these are big shoes to fill. I've been in education for over 20 years. I don't want to date myself. I love my job. I am so glad I get paid for it because I don't know what else to do. So I get to be with this positive energy of youth and be part of their beautiful minds and see them grow and develop into these global citizens of tomorrow that we talk about. But unlike Juanita, my issue was different. They have a STEM initiative to engage more students into STEM. I come from Cupertino, or I teach at Cupertino City of Apple Computers. Our community really values STEM education. Every single kid is taking 10 AP courses and all the math and science and everything. So 20 or so years ago, you know, I've been teaching there for 22 years. About 10 years or so ago, I started really questioning the goal of education. Like, why am I teaching them? Like, they're memorizing acids, bases, pH. You ask them any literal question, they'll do it. And I say, hey, do you ever use it in life? The Students were literally not able to see their space 
place in this world or application of their knowledge. And that made me switch my goal of teaching. I stopped teaching chemistry. I started teaching life through chemistry. Chemistry was a vehicle to make them responsible citizens of tomorrow. And there was a little bit selfish in me because I was thinking, oh my God, these kids are going to go on. They're going to be our voting citizens of tomorrow. They're going to vote on nuclear energy. They're going to vote. So right now, if you give them a candy, they'll go happily vote for the candidate who's passing out candy. And I knew that I needed to change something. And I started redesigning my units to bring more relevance into their learning. And students absolutely loved it. There was a lot of engagement. I knew to engage students into environmental literacy, I needed to up my skills. Because I was a trained chemistry teacher. I know my chemistry inside out or how to teach chemistry, but I didn't know how to teach environmental literacy. So I went to the most obvious place, National Geographic, and I became certified educator. And when I became that, my students, my community, my fellow teachers, they all started asking me, but wait, aren't you a chemistry teacher? What are you doing at National Geographic? And that made me think, yeah, what am I doing at National Geographic? Am I not a chemistry teacher? But then I started thinking, who is teaching 2,500 of my future citizens environmental literacy? In my high school, where kids are taking 10 to 12 or 15 APs, only less than 200 students per year take environmental science. How about those 2,300? They will be making choices for my future, their future, for our planet's future. They'll be the consumers, the homemakers, the child rearers of tomorrow. They all needed to understand environmental literacy. So I'm going to share with you my journey of how I still do right by my AP chemistry course. This is a college level course, and I will not want to take credit. This is my students, but we have maintained integrity of the course. But with that, we have infused environmental literacy. And to all my educators, just like our students, we think we are too small. What can I do? You know, you can. And if you make a little change, see how many doors it will open to you. And this is literally my story. So I started by making small tweaks. I got National Geographic certified educator. Um, certification from there, and I get talking, you know, I'm a teacher, then I forget, these are my wonderful <laughs> students, we have a lot of fun, this is Halloween, so I fire breathe, I set my hand on fire, our students have Halloween costumes, they come in, so a lot of excitement, we celebrate Mole Day with periodic table design contacts, and they contest, and they get to eat their projects, so they love it. <laughs> they do have, so don't get me wrong, they understand, yeah, you know, this is sugary drink, I shouldn't drink this, you know, there's this much sugar, but they don't understand their role, or they feel too small in big issues like climate change or environmental education. So I started changing my unit, and lucky for me, then I got to National Geographic, and I became um, Grosvenor Teacher Fellow. As part of this fellowship, you get to go to a pristine expedition. I chose to go to Galapagos. And this expedition literally changed my life. I've never been the same person ever since. It is one thing to see things through a screen, but it's another thing to go there and experience the beauty of that place 
just raw. So this is a picture that changed me forever. That was one day we all went to beach. I didn't take my camera that day. I just wanted to absorb the nature, the sights and the sounds. I was sitting on a rock and this baby sea lion came and literally, we are not allowed to be within 20 feet of the animals. So in Galapagos, these animals have no fear. They've never been hunted. So the birds sit, you can walk by them, they will not fly off. We are not supposed to poke, prod, or go to the animals. Animals can come to you. This baby sea lion came to me, literally sat there for three minutes. And I tell you, we had a heart to heart. I could look in its eyes. I talked, it didn't move away. In that moment, I will say it parallels the birth of my children. Mm -hmm. I realized that I needed to do more because otherwise my next generation will not be able to experience what I did that day. And then I came back with a new resolve and now only teaching my science students environmental literacy wasn't enough. So we created a multidisciplinary event where there was social studies, art, drama, because we wanted to talk to heart, right? We got all of them involved. And if you want to know how to do it, this is a simple method. It's called Youth Participatory Action Research. We have some educators hand guides, and I will be very, very happy to talk to you. But you can see this was done by the students, for the students, and there were over 500 students, 100 projects. They engaged with scientists and policymakers and got feedback and felt so validated in their learning. I would have told you more stories, but my time is up. I'd be happy to share more, but I can tell you from there I got, from National Geographic, I got a lot of connections. So now I went beyond my high school. We have 10 different high schools who are working to organize a Youth Climate Summit. They organized one last year. There were 500 students presenting, talking to Dr. Bob Ballard. He's the one who discovered Titanic, asking him questions, learning. And this is where they connected with Florida, Galapagos, and Silicon Valley students. They learn from each other, and this work continues. So now, the question creeps up time to time, but wait, aren't you a chemistry teacher? Yes, I am, and I do this work because the youth might be a small percentage of the entire population today, but they are 100% of the future. So I grew up, or spent my younger years, I guess I'm still growing up, um, <laughs> on a small farm up in Sonoma County. And I played in the creeks and caught frogs and watched birds and grew really close to nature. Later, as I grew older, I moved south to Moran County, and I learned more and more about climate change as I went through school. I even got to experience some of climate change's effects myself. For instance, last summer, while climbing in British Columbia, my team and I happened upon this valley, which according to our map that was only made 30 years ago, was supposed to have 200 feet of glacial ice. But as you can see, it's completely barren. Due to these things, I decided that I really needed to do something for climate change. Yet, because of my position as a student, I felt that there was really not very much I could do. I was incredibly, incredibly frustrated because I didn't have quite enough knowledge to do anything substantial, yet I cared just as much as anybody else. I had always been interested in biomimicry. It seems like such a wonderful way to try to find sustainable solutions. So when I heard about the Biomimicry Youth Design Challenge, I realized that it would be a really great thing to do at my high school. 
So I found a faculty advisor and several other students who were also interested in helping to do something for climate change, but didn't know about biomimicry. And we began looking for different ways that we could help use biomimicry to limit climate change. We decided to target tidal energy, capturing electricity from the ocean's currents, and we began to research tidal kites. Now, a tidal kite is just like a kite that's in the air, except for that instead of being blown by the current, instead of being blown by the wind, it's blown by the current. Now, tidal kites are advantageous over a stationary turbine because unlike a turbine which can't move through the water, it's limited by the current flow going past it. A tidal kite can move through the current as horizontally as well as um, with the current's direction. This means that they can generate several times more electricity and are very helpful for areas with low current velocities, such as the San Francisco Bay. Unfortunately, though, current tidal kites have several very large issues, particularly when it comes to their control and stabilization systems. They have flaps and rudders that help steer the kite through the water, yet those systems break a lot, and they mean that the kites have to be serviced frequently, and that's overall reduced their ability to be used across the world. We begin to look for ways that nature flies through fluids without any active controls. First, we looked at Valella Valella, which is the organism on the left there. It's related to the Portuguese man-of-war jellyfish, and due to that little fin that it has on its top, it moves like a sailboat across the ocean's surface. Unfortunately, though, although that's a really great method of moving across two fluids, it does require the boundary between the ocean's water and the wind in order to move. Next, we looked at Sycamore Samara, the seeds that helicopter down from trees. But we realized that their helicoptering motion, although a wonderful way to limit their flight speed, was not quite ideal to harness the full potential of the ocean's currents. That led us to Alsomatra macocarpa, this seed, which grows on vines that climb high to the top of rainforest trees before being released and flying up to a kilometer before landing on the ground. This really unique flight is due to characteristics such as swept back wings, curved wingtips, and a unique position of the center of flight in relation to the center of mass. As you can see here, the seed spirals as it goes down due to small asymmetries in the two wings. Seeds with broader wings fly in a straighter path, while seeds with more asymmetric wings fly in a spiraled path. And these differences in wing symmetry mean that the seeds have a very large range of dispersion. Using the seed, we designed this model, which as you can see has the same swept back wings and a bunch of other characteristics that are harder to tell, but are there and allow it to have a very stable flight through the water. We then printed out this model and built a small rudimentary generator using a spool and a motor that we ran backwards in order to produce a current. And we were able to generate about 16 watts of electricity doing basic tests in a pool. With this design, we were actually able to win the Biomimicry Youth Design Challenge, which is really surprising and wonderful. Um, and, and part of that was $1,000 for further research. This year, our goal is to figure out the exact ratio between wing symmetry that will allow for the most efficient energy generation. In order to do this, we're currently building a large test rig that we can place in a pool um, to get a, a standardized measurement of current speed. Our hope is that although our design may not be something that can be used to generate electricity, perhaps either in the future we or other organizations might be able to use the ideas that we're generating in order to bring tidal kites across the world. Thank you. Wow, huh? <laughs> um, so now we have about 10 minutes for questions and answers. So we'd like to invite any of you to 
go to one of the mics and there we go. Start us off. Hi, um, my question is directed to Ms. Chan. Um, so I help run a program called Pathmakers Program out of Humboldt County, and it is a whole STEAM project um, with the A in there, arts, um, but STEAM project um, related around Native youth. So your project really uh, spoke to me. I'm wondering on a county level, because we have uh, some similar statistics that you do, um, especially with our free or reduced lunch, but getting a program like this off the air with curriculum development is something that we're kind of struggling with and trying to figure that out, um, trying to reach the masses while still prioritizing our Native youth. In a, in a question, I really appreciate um, your, your program, what you're doing, because it is important. But um, Thank you. Yeah. So we do a lot of work with our local county offices of education, and what I've seen that I think um, that I think is really uh, important to consider is that while sometimes it's easier to usurp the, the district office and just go directly to teachers, if you can find the ear of somebody that's in the education services department in each of your districts, then they'll be able to make your whatever it is that you're trying to do hit more kids more systemically and systematically so that it's not just, oh, every year I work with the two classes from this one elementary school or from this one middle school mm -hmm. to instead using the same amount of like footwork, you could hit all of the third graders in a whole district, which multiplies your numbers like exponentially and, um, and it's not as difficult. So we had, a, we had another program called GenSTEM and when the program designer came to me, well, it wasn't really a program design, she just had this idea. She was like, I wanna see all your kids in the gym. And I was like, you have no idea what you're even asking for because <laughs> we have 25,000 kids. Yeah. And so every program is gonna have its limits of the capacity of the number of students that, or time that you're able to invest. If you're working with somebody at the district office, they'll be able to maximize that time um, so that instead of, so we do events where instead of one person who can only designate two hours for a day, let's just say, um, going to one class, instead we set that person up stationary and we rotate all of the kids into that, um, that event for two hours. So we're doing something for all of our fifth graders. That's how it started with water. And again, the ask for the organization was two hours every morning for five days. And if we got three hours every morning for five days, we could rotate all of the fifth graders in our district, which was like 2,000 plus kids, through those stations. We had to think creatively because they had one set of programming that they were aiming for, but there are always other things that can help, like, uh, like you're saying STEAM, so thinking about having a science station and a math station and an English station, so that it's truly a field trip style thing where you're maximizing the number of students that you're hitting and the, and the time that's coming from you directly is minimized. Yeah, it's wonderful. Thank you. And I'm, I'm so sorry, as a follow-up to that, just being so rural, one of the things that we're really finding is the inequity of education. Um, so we have students that live um, right near Arcata Eureka who are totally into it. They have been coding since kindergarten already, and they're they're great. And then we have a, a school just north of that that doesn't have a science program in their in their uh, middle school. Um, so, I mean, these these four through, you know, so then having a system like that is, is wonderful. But then we get kids that are like, I don't even have any, you know, I don't 
don't have any experience with this. I can't move forward with this. So partnering again with the teachers and the um, and the school sites or whatever, you can have almost like satellite campuses. Perfect. And kids, yeah. you're giving out the activities and they can run them and you're just kind of checking in and there might be something where there's a telepresence station where you can make sure everybody's getting a very similar experience. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I taught climate science for almost all of the 18 years that I taught there, but not as a subject. I just like took part of the curriculum, the biology <laughs> curriculum, and threw it out and went ahead and taught, you know, taught climate science. And I had the kids do a conference every year where they organized the conference. That conference, those conferences are awesome, unbelievable, beautiful. And we only had little pieces of it. Anyway, I have two ideas right now. What I have, I have two projects that I'm trying to work on and I need help with them both. And so if there's anybody in the room that could help me with them. One is that there should be a class on teaching climate change across the curriculum. So if there's anybody who is doing curriculum in social studies, the arts, all, any of those things, then I, I really would like to, you know, nab your stuff and teach it to the teachers. <laughs> so I actually have resource for you here in Educator's Guide. There are all live links with examples and resources awesome. and everything. You can, this is ready to go. And the, along with the research skills, like how do you teach students to choose a topic? How do you teach them to do research? How do you teach them to do presentations? So it's got everything in it. Awesome, Lesson awesome, plans. thank you so much. The other idea that I have is that I think it's important to go through the districts. But the fact of the matter is the real learning community is the school. What I think we need to develop are teams of educators who would go into a school that's been, maybe a school that's been mandated to teach climate change, or a school that chooses to teach climate change, a team that would go in and orient them as to how to do it, but also why to do it, why they have you know, like an institutional change set of workshops. Great. so that they could see it. Yeah, and we, we do have a number of programs that we can connect you with afterwards if you want to stick around, um, as well as an up-and-coming website for the California Environmental Literacy Initiative, which will compile some of those resources and resources and opportunities for teachers. Okay, one last question. My name's Nita Winter, and my husband Rob Badger and I are conservation photographers, and we've put together a project called Beauty and the Beast, Wildflowers and Climate Change, and we have focused on a, cal we have a California traveling exhibit that's been seen by over 42,000 people. We're using art to action, to educate and inspire people to take action. This book is coming out later this year, and we have 16 authors who've written short stories from the head of Scripps Institute, writing about who's taking the, the Earth's temperature, to Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a Native American botanist and professor who wrote about what's in a name. So a lot of 18 different stories, and I've been thinking this really should turn into a curriculum. And I'm not sure how to proceed with that, with this information yeah. to do that. And so okay. we use imagery to attract attention, mm -hmm. um, the wildflowers throughout the state, and then the stories, and then we have a whole 25 steps you can take to make a difference. So we not only inspire action, we also give people suggestions on what they can do. Okay. Absolutely. Again, after, be sure to connect with either Karen or myself. We threw up three frameworks. We're now, we have our eyes set on the visual and performing arts um, framework, integrating environmental literacy as well, which I think would, that would be prime for, um, for curriculum development. So, um, so be sure to connect with us. All right. Can you guys hear me all right? Okay. 
Who already knows what biomimicry is? Excellent. Who already teaches biomimicry? What? All right. You're going to come help me lead this in just a second. Um, my name is Beth Ratner. I am the executive director for the Biomimicry Institute. And I am not a biologist. I am not a chemist. I was a lawyer. I took a long, you know, right, you know, wrong turn and ended up here, um, or right turn and ended up here. And it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to tell you a few things about biomimicry that you, maybe you didn't know. Maybe you already did. Um, and then we're going to practice. So we're going to break into small groups of maybe just three or four people. And we're going we're gonna to do some biomimicry today. You're going to leave biomimics. Are you excited about that? Yeah, yeah you are. Um, first, for context, uh, between being a lawyer and now being the executive director, I was also a sustainability management consultant. And we would walk into companies all the time and say, you know, there's going to be 10 billion people on the planet. And I would say these numbers all the time and I would present and I just could not get my head around it until we broke down the math and realized that that's 255 babies every minute. And as it was recently pointed out to me, yes, uh, about 40% of that number die every minute too. So it kind of works out. But by the same token, there's a lot of people coming to the planet with new needs. The issue is, what's the plan, right? IPCC says that there's got to be dramatic, rapid, and far-reaching transitions is the phrase that's used. And everybody's still struggling to figure out what that is. And this is where I come up with the good news. And the good news is that there is a plan. And it's been working for about 3.8 billion years. So we just have to learn how to read those blueprints. And honestly, when I learned this, there was this huge sigh of relief. Like, okay, we don't have to figure that. Because, you know, humans, like, we want things like this, but by the same token, we're kind of slow to, uh, to change. The second bit of good news is that we live in a uniquely um, science-driven time where we see microscopy images that are going to tell us literally how to do this. There are blueprints available to us that will teach us things around coatings and color and adhesives that frankly we just couldn't see before. And I feel like now that we can see it, we can follow it. The other good news is, um, does anybody know how many species there are right now by rough count in the world? Anyway, some numbers? About, <laughs> not 10, but there are about 10 million. There's about six, there's about 8.7 million species. Uh, six and a half live on the land, another 2.2 live in the ocean. This was a recent, very like methodically done count. I think that we're probably still way off. So, um, but the good news is that that means that there's about 8.7 million sets of instructions for us to be following. This is Janine Benyas. She's spoken at Bioneers many times. Have, has anyone ever heard her speak? How great is Janine? She is an actually biologist. Phenomenal, and she asked this fundamental question, which is, so how do we make this process of asking for nature's advice part of everyday inventing? So that brings us to what we do at the Institute. And there's a big category of bio-inspired design, and you'll see robots, right, that are bio-inspired, and we don't really count that, camp, that part of the camp because we're specifically focused on ecologically driven solutions. Maybe the robots will end up helping us and help us save the planet, but mostly what we're talking about 
are new ways of energy, like Caleb did, new ways of, of doing non-toxic adhesives, that kind of end of the spectrum. Biomimicry can be a form, it can be a process, or it can be a whole system. So the form, the best example, right, is Velcro. That's the one that we, everybody points to. The process is uh, uh, dye-sensitized solar cell, right? Uh, emulating photosynthesis. And a system could be like the circular economy ecosystem. Uh, for the empirical among the crowd that want to know that this is really a new way of inventing, like this is the number of pa papers and patents that is happening in the bio-inspired design space. It is in a rapidly growing field. And for just the educators in the room, um, you'll be positioning your kids to do really well if you can get them onto this track. The examples I'd like to give is, um, is everyone familiar with Project Drawdown? So Project, for the, just the few who aren't, Project Drawdown took a whole bunch of postdocs and scientists and said, okay, tell me, in order, what do we need to do to actually draw carbon down out of the environment? And what, what's, this, what's the numeric sequence that we should be doing it in? And uh, they came up with a top 80 list of things to be doing. Project Drawdown's phenomenal. Uh, Paul Hawken led that effort. Number two on the list was onshore wind. So the number is we got to get from about, we're about 3.5 to shy of 4% of wind power, and we've got to get up to about 22% if we're going to achieve, I think, what is it, 84 and a half gigatons, right, of drawdown of uh, avoided carbon emissions. That's going to cost about one and a quarter trillion dollars, but it'll save seven and a half trillion. But what do you do for the people in the counties and the places who say, like, well, I don't actually have a few extra trillion laying around or even a few extra hundred million? So this is where biomimicry comes in. We believe that at a fraction of the cost, you can actually take vertical wind turbines instead of the horizontal ones, mass them together, just like schools of fish, and you can get between 5 and 10x the output of energy. This is a project that was done out of Stanford, a guy named John, a professor named John DeBerry. A professor, not a guy. <laughs> and um, uh, just to tremendous success. And it really came down to there is a fish algorithm based upon the vortices that are thrown by the fish tail. So, and this is just like drafting, like if any of you are bikers. This is the same principle that's at work. Number 10 on the list is rooftop solar. And we need to go from 0.4%, less than 1%, 0.4% of homes to 7% of homes. Similarly, that cost is about $453 billion. But this team, another team, so the year before Caleb that won was a team out of South Carolina, and they were looking at the Oriental Hornet. So the Oriental Hornet, which you can see in the upper corner there, is one of the few hornets that can actually, it still flies around when it's hot outside. And the reason it flies around when it's hot outside, therefore getting a food advantage, everything that biomimicry does, by the way, is because it's following a plan that worked. It kept that animal, that insect, that plant alive. So the oriental hornet has an advantage, which is it uses solar power to assist its electrical flight. That brown part of the cuticle reflects back up to the yellow part of the cuticle absorbs light, and even though it's a 1% energy conversion, you still have enough electrical assist to keep that, that hornet in flight. So this team took that design, that cuticle design. They didn't actually look to the color, but they actually looked to the cuticle design itself, the, the structural element. They made it essentially a concentrator 
by building that concentrator and then just reflecting onto a regular existing solar cell, they got between 10 and 25% greater output. So these mechanisms exist. They don't have to cost a lot. Most biomimicry inventions are actually very low cost and hyper efficient because that's what nature has to do. Uh, the last solution I just want to talk about, actually two more, uh, really briefly before I make you guys all do your own invention, is, um, is forest. I think this is number, I don't remember what number this is on the list, but it's definitely top 10, reforestation. And this is like, an, it's just a very powerful concept, right? If we could just reforest where we have taken it down, and we still take down, even with awareness, we still take down the size of Panama every year. Actually, it might even be something it's, it's a dramatic number. It might actually be more frequent than that. But it's the same as taking every car off the road. The problem is most reforestation efforts fail. And the reason that they fail is because they are often in uphills, inaccessible areas where the reforester has really good intentions. They go out there and they plant their little sapling and they say, good luck, little sapling. And then the sapling, too much water, not enough water, leaf cutter ants, you name it. So this team looked at the bromeliad plant and this concept of leaf litter in general and was able to emulate a design. And they created these biodegradable big plastic planters that are exactly in that same sort of dimension of the bromeliad plant. So it passively captures water, it passively captures the leaf litter. Now all of a sudden you have basically nutrients going to the system and at the same time the ants don't like to crawl upside down so they were able to uh, prevent them from being attacked. They're trying to plant, plant two and a half million trees over the next five years, and their success rate is 50 to 75% higher than anybody else's. Does anyone know what this is? It is the Saharan silver ant. We have a, a few challenges, which I'll tell you about in a second, but for our, our kids in middle school, they say that the superpower of the Saharan silver ant <laughs> I love that they call it a superpower. That's what it is. It is. It was just in The Guardian that it's also, in addition to the fact that it reflects heat up to 140 degrees, and it does it, and I can, I'll show you this image right here. Its hairs, oh, you can't really tell from this particular image. So its hairs are triangular. So in making this triangular design, the sun will reflect from both angles in addition to the fact that there's a little bit of an air gap, which acts as an insulation barrier between the, actual, between the sublayer of the skin and the, and the upper layer of the hair. So at the same time, they're also the fastest. They go the equivalent of, it would be like if your house cat would go 120 miles an hour in the house. That's how fast these little guys are moving. It's 108 uh, body lengths a second that they can move. And I don't know if that's actually tied to their hair design or not, but. They're phenomenal animals to study. This team is um, out of Hawaii. They're our middle school kids. And they said that superpower should be translated into how we think about roofing tiles. Because the earth is getting hotter. Places are getting hotter. Why are we? Yes, we should be collecting it from solar. But there's also going to be a lot of excess heat. Why don't we reflect it back? So they created roof tiles. And what I love most of all is this quote that they sent when, with their submission, which is, and knowing you've done or made something that could save or help someone's day is probably one of the best feelings in the world. So this is what we're doing. As like we're teaching the next generation of kids and entrepreneurs how to read biological blueprints. Because like I said, they're there. 
and we just don't know how to read them. We don't have that lens. We weren't taught. So we have a youth design challenge for middle school and high school. And if you go to um, our website, biomimicry.org, it is free. It is a free curricula. It is tied to NGSS. It is tied to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. You can meet a lot of these elements that um, are part of your uh, existing engineering curricula, for instance, through, um, through teaching this process. We have it also for university kids. And then the best ones that are also for um, young adults or university kids go on to be part of our launch pad, where we help connect them to mentors, ultimately to uh, pitching competitions and uh, venture capitalists if they want to take it forward. Like the reforestation guys, we, they won, when they won, they got a $100,000 prize, and we introduced them to uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of media, and frankly, which led to um, some investment. My favorite day of the year is when we get all these hundreds of submissions from literally all around the world. I feel like, okay, we're gonna be all right. People are on this. So now I want you to be on this. So we're gonna, we're gonna break up into little things. Before you break up, here's what we're gonna do. Um, I'm gonna come back to that slide in just a second. I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna design a temporary shelter. And you can think about the application for your temporary shelter. Maybe it's for camping, maybe it's for homelessness, maybe it's for um, an emergency. We just recently, I, was, I live in Marin County and we lost our power. I live up on the mountain, we lost our power for three days. You know, if that had been at a different time of year, I wouldn't have been able to stay in the house. You know, so it's, you never really know, but temporary shelter will come up for a lot of people. So here's the question. What is your scenario? And then I'm gonna walk you through a process. By the way, you guys know the um, IDEO design thinking process? So it's very similar. Okay, break up into groups maybe of four, three, four. You have to do it, it's mandatory. Can I get some, yeah, go ahead. What kind of proof structures? Oh, earthquake proof structures, fantastic. So survive shaking, because that's great. And the reason I clarified is because the next step is going to be finding a biological model. And so you're gonna to have to figure out what are the key terms you would either look up in the scientific literature or as you're out in the world. And maybe it's more than just shaking, maybe it's undulation, maybe yeah, there's probably a lot of different verbs, but that's a great one. Does anybody else have one they wanna share? Portable, very important. Portable, yeah. Aesthetic. Ah, nice. So I would ask both of you for portable and for aesthetic. Now push to that a little bit more. What does it mean to be portable? Does that mean, is are you looking for foldability? Are you looking for lightweight? Are you looking for all the above? Like, so break down portability into more functions. So you'll think about that in your group next. And aesthetics, how would you describe that? Pleasing to the eye. So maybe, a, yeah, attraction. That's gonna be a harder one to define biologically, but it happens, right? It happens all the time. Yeah, flowers. Uh, yes, and then you. Go. Energy harvesting, very good. That's a great one. Yeah. So we're looking at homeless shelters. Homeless, yeah. And, uh, There's a lot in there. That's fantastic, though. So here's what I'm gonna have you guys do for your next part. Pick one, pick one of those things. So maybe it's modular design, in your case, or, or pick it. Okay, there you go. So now the question, the very next step is 
you've got to discover. So we call this biologizing the question. You've got to biologize your question because that's going to be your method by which you find the examples. And once you know your, uh, let's see if I can have, where's Ask Nature? So we have this product called asknature.org, and you're always, you, you guys are welcome to use it in the room right now. Asknature.org, you type in your problem, and it has to be a function. You type that in, and you're going to get a list of insects, animals, plants that accomplish that. So, but you got to ask the right question, otherwise you don't get the right result. It's tricky. I'm sorry we're doing a speed round here, but I'm going to cut you off. But um, come up to the microphone and tell me about some of the organisms you at least began to think about. And maybe, maybe the problems that you encountered in the process. But come up to the mic and just share what you, uh, what you thought. Okay, so we haven't found the word for what this is, but we're thinking a lot about moss, the quality of moss that you can like press on it and it springs back as like nice. a comfort element, but we don't know where to go with that, but that's the organism we're thinking about is moss. Fantastic. Yeah. I don't know either. <laughs> Not a biologist. We're so. thinking about um, having a shelter that's portable and protective from the elements and from predators. And so we were thinking about armadillo and tortoise shells. Nice. Which also were pleasing because they're attractive. <laughs> ah, very good. Very good. Very so basically this this durable shell concept. Nice. And retractable. Who else has one? We were addressing the issue of trying to have temperature control and we found something on the website about gazelles that cool their brain with countercurrent heat exchange through their antlers. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And I um Jackrabbits, too, right? They regulate their body temperature through their big ears. Um, so we wanted to kind of focus on um, a waterproof aspect. And so we kind of, um, first we thought about, like, otters and the fact that they have a, like, crazy amount of hair per, like, square inch that insulates them and creates them and makes them waterproof. Um, we didn't think we could give everyone an otter, though. So <laughs> that didn't really solve our problem. Then we also went to the website and we found some stuff about... Um, thing that is excreted from these types of bees that makes like waterproof nest linings called the Dufer's gland. So that was really interesting. Very cool. Yeah. And actually, yeah, the otter is the most water, is one of the most water repellent creatures that there is. And you don't have to give people otters as much as you have to emulate <laughs> the otter skin because we love the otters. We don't want to kill them. Um, so this is the next hard part. So now, thinking about some of the biology, how would you start to translate those patterns of design into your own structural design? And you don't have to do it all, but just begin to think about it to the point about the otter, so, or, or maybe whatever the nesting, was it a secretion? Yes. Like an oil. Yes. So how would you then start to translate this into your design? For your armadillo, what, is it, what, is this, what does your shelter begin to look like? How would, how would you make it? What materials would you use? I almost, I hate to bring it up. You guys, you guys look so earnest. Like, I feel like REI should just come over right now and start getting your designs. All right, who wants to stand up at the mic? So, so we're just uh, working with our highest visions here. 
we were talking about like mold and mildew and how to keep that out of the like lining of whatever kind of semi-portable structure that we're creating yeah. shelter but uh thinking more in the like permaculture style of how to work with nature and we're talking about like wet kind of humid areas what kind of organism whether it's like a fungus or something could we build into the fabric that could actually like ah. eat the mildew, eat the mold, and produce something that could be beneficial to whoever's inside, whether it's like a mushroom that could be eaten or healing in some way or multifunctional. Uh, yeah, so something like that. We're and we're just we're we're dreaming big here. I love it. Yeah. I love it. That's fantastic. And that's always true by the way. Nature doesn't use one design. Nature uses structure to create function, right? But it doesn't ever use one structure to create one function. It's always multiple. It's one to many. Who else wants to share? Well, we have figured it out. This is <laughs> the, story of the story of the future here. We, we've designed, we were looking at uh, waterproofing, and that turned out to be bees nesting um, materials that they use in their beehives. Mm -hmm. And we would just create a fabric made out of all those little hexagon materials and create a hexagon big shape made out of all the little ones and then coat it with some cellophane-like stuff that you find in hives. And it would be crushable, yeah, roll-upable. Compactable. Yeah, and then you just roll it out, shake it out, and there it is, your hexagon covering with, it. with a little door. we got to make the door. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Let me ask you guys a, just all in general a question. Bee 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 spit. Bee spit. Bee spit. Like there's a good marketing campaign in that. Let me ask you a question. What about this process? You don't you can answer out loud or not, but what about this process was a little different for you than if I had just said, please design it like a radically different tent? What what happened in your brain or what happened through your design process that allowed maybe some meandering to happen or or different ideas did anyone experience that yeah. did anyone not experience that i'm just going to finish up really briefly because you're because usually this process happens over over days right or weeks um, if it's in the classroom it happens over weeks uh, but if you take a design workshop this would happen over the course of days and you would finish you would actually have a sketch and in, and with any hope you would do like what caleb did and you would prototype it and that's how you're going to get to the next level of design. Um, so maybe you guys could change, exchange numbers and keep going even after today. I'd love to see your design. You should actually, if you have good designs, you should really enter it. In our Global Design Challenge, you can be any age. And you can get your $100,000 and be great. Um, in conclusion, let me just say two things. One is... No matter how many great examples we seem to have about biomimicry, and there are many, there are literally thousands of patents that are out there, people still ask me like, yeah, but can we really do this? Or is it really that great an idea? And our short answer is this is the probably the best bet we have toward achieving a circular economy, that we have toward fitting in with the rest of the planet, toward being the species that doesn't decimate the other species. It's also, the process is it's hyper-localized. You can look to, you can look in Rialto and see what works in Rialto. You can see what works here in Muir Woods. You can find locally attuned organisms and mentors so that your design fits. But I think the last reason of all is because that process of noticing 
does change your life. You're not going to be able to see beast bit the same way again. You're going to have a very different respect for otters and for turtle shells. Like It opens up your eyes to a very different way of experiencing the world. And that was what um, Leonardo da Vinci said, which was, nature is the source of all true knowledge. She has her own logic, her own laws. She has no effect without cause, nor invention without necessity. Thank you for playing today. If you love Bioneers Radio, it's free and easy to support us. Just take a moment to post a review on our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find our show online. You'll be helping other people find and enjoy these incredible thinkers and storytellers. And thank you for helping us out. Thank you.